Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know what, guys? There was a, a time where I was absolutely enthralled with pirates. But those were pirates on the high seas. When I was in college, there was a totally different type of piracy that was running rampant across the networks. And that was the theft of intellectual property. So today we're taking a classic look at how Napster worked. Now, this episode originally published on April 3rd, 2013. So let's listen to this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Napster. And Napster is... Um it's got a bad rap. It it it's kind of become synonymous with the, at least the old Napster, the original Napster, uh-huh, yeah. has become synonymous with things like piracy. Uh-huh. Although in the lawless days of the internet, yes. when everyone just stole from Lars Ulrich. Yes, uh, in fact, he ended up, he ended up uh, delivering a lawsuit by hand. To so the, full of ire he was that yes. yes he took this I, I think it was they said sixty thousand pages. pages. I don't know. I don't know that a. 
I don't know that even a a, a, a member of Metallica can carry a sixty thousand page. Maybe by hand truck. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure by hand, but sure. Maybe I, maybe it on, been a on CD series I, of CDs. Yeah. Um. So anyway, let's talk about Napster right. and and what it was and what it is today because it's it's definitely changed quite a bit. So it's a it's it's all about really it's all about music. It's technically it's about file sharing, but those files are were essentially music files, MP3 files. Uh, Napster limited itself to MP3 files. Lots of other peer-to-peer sharing networks used, you know, you could you could get movies on right. there, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, but you could, uh, games, everything, any mm-hmm. kind of file. Mm-hmm. Well, Napster Term was all, papers, about, yeah. all about MP3s. And, and, and you have to understand, like, the, the, the days when we first start looking at this idea that's way back in the late 90s, back then, music... Uh, was not something that you could easily get on the internet. It mm-hmm. was uh, first of all anything that was on a web page was MIDI based or whatever it was, right. or mod based. It was just it was not uh, anywhere close yeah. to CD quality. We didn't have an iTunes store, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. There, there wasn't. You know, but there were people or, who what they would then did I just say uh, completely? I just said that. I oh, have when, no idea when iTunes true. was fa- founded, yeah. I, that's a different show. Excellent. So anyway. <laughs> There, there's a whole, you know, iTunes for a long time was just a jukebox type of program where you would manage the music that you already had. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a store where you would buy new music. It was a, it was a management system. Uh, so really at this time, the way you would get, if you were someone who wanted to get a music file, you would essentially have to search around for someone who was hosting music files on a website somewhere mm-hmm. and then download them. And these, these websites were very much unreliable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is what got a certain guy thinking about different ways of going about it. The guy's name was Sean Fanning. Yeah. And, and as, as of 1997, he got his first computer and very shortly after that uh, uh, created Napster. So that was... Yeah. It was within two years he had gone from getting his first computer to creating one of the most influential and notorious web services and, and programs of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he got his computer from his uncle, John Fanning, mm-hmm. uh, who ended up being who a big supporter. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. He he provided the seed money for, for Napster in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, he was also not just interested in programming right off the bat, but also interested in Internet Relay Chat, IRC, IRC. which mm-hmm. is, you know, one of many different protocols that allow you to uh, communicate over the Internet. And um, in an instant instant messenger kind yes, of way. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. As opposed to like email email or right. something along those lines. And he got interested in the field of Internet security. And uh, he described himself at the time as a white hat, not a hacker. So the idea right. being that he was interested in finding ways to make Internet security more robust. Mm-hmm. So if and you in, were and in helping people, not not stealing from people. Right. Like not. Yeah. You know, like he might look at a system and say, oh, you have a vulnerability here. You need to patch it as opposed to, oh, you have a vulnerability here. Give me all your things. Right. Um, that was kind of his his. At least that's what he said, and I I, I have no reason to doubt him. Um, but he met virtually a fellow named Sean Parker online in those days, and Sean Parker also becomes important in the Napster story. So in '98, he was uh, starting to think about this uh, thing that uh, about music files. Uh, and by the way, this kid is a teenager. I mean, yeah. he, you know, if I'm using the word kid, it's not just because I use that word for everybody. It's because he was literally like 17 to 19 at the time. Yeah, he was uh, in 1998. He was uh, well, that was when he was 18, turning 19. Uh, and he he was a, a freshman at Northeastern University in Boston. And he knew that there were a lot of 
kids his age really interested in music and they really wanted to find more music. But again, it was really tricky to find it online because these websites that would host files, they wouldn't last very long. Maybe someone stops, uh, stops monitoring it or maintaining it and the links are all dead mm-hmm. or uh, because of high traffic, you know, everyone finds out that this is where this one file is. Everyone goes there and then it crashes the site. Yeah. It was really, really tricky to find a way to reliably get those music files. Mm-hmm. Uh, also important to note, in 1998, that was when the Digital Millennium Copyright Act went into effect. Yes, very important. That's uh, Congress enacted that, and uh, that was uh, that was essentially Congress's way of saying, we understand that intellectual property is important, that copyright is important, and that the Internet age has dramatically changed how easy it is to distribute material that is under copyright. So here are some rules to guide how we can it, uh, how we can legislate this sort of stuff. It essentially criminalized the circumvention of any kind of digital rights management right. measures. It, it also, however, created something called Safe Harbor, which was very important and would become extremely important in Napster's case. Safe Harbor is a concept whereby it says, if your site or service is not actively uh, engaged in copyright infringement, but the users are using your service in order to conduct copyright infringement, you yourself are not at fault. You cannot be held at fault for the behavior of your users because the users are behaving however they want to behave. You're providing a service. As long as your service is not actively meant to circumvent copyright protection or to distribute copyright materials illegally, then you should be in the clear because you cannot be held responsible for what other people do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's an important concept. It's also one that ultimately you could argue was not held up in the case of Napster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Other while we're on the subject, other concept that became important in this argument was the Audio Home Recording Act of 1992, which said that you are allowed to make unlimited copies, essentially, of any CDs and cassettes that you own for personal use and for your friends as long as you're not receiving compensation. Right. So, again, the idea being that if I own something, I can make a copy of it. Usually it's considered a copy for backup purposes. So, for example, let's say I own a CD and I want to be able to make a second CD in case something happens to that first one because, I mean, I bought that CD. I it's feel yours. Like that, that's mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you this this is this is something yeah something that the music industry was not so pleased about. I mean, every industry, whenever any sort of uh, uh, invention has come up that allows people to copy uh, material some way, for instance, VCRs and DVRs, yeah, the various industries get very nervous about it because they're afraid that. Well, for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is they are afraid that that's going to impact sales. Yeah. That it means that you're going to end up distributing stuff and then you cut out the uh, the person or entity that is in charge of distributing that and then they that lose owns money. the copyright and that, you know, and that, that paid to make this thing happen essentially and that they're yeah. going to lose money. Yeah. It's a huge, huge thing when VCRs came out in the in the early 80s, not that I remember, but. Um. <laughs> Why are you looking at me, Lauren? Is it only because I'm your co-host, or is it because you actually know that I remember when VCRs came out? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna the let smile everyone... on her face tells me the answer. All I need to know, folks. All I need to know. Anyway, um, but yeah, so so that that's kind of the state of of digital copyright as right. of 1998. So. Meanwhile, Sean Fanning is saying maybe there's a better way of being able to find and get the music files that you really want. And he starts to come up with this idea where uh, the idea would be to create a centralized server. And that server's job would be to search for and index 
music files. And, uh, and the way it would work is that you would subscribe to the service. Uh, you would essentially register yourself as a user with mm-hmm. the service. And then as a registered user, you would get a folder that you would put on your hard drive. And that folder would be a shareable folder. Anything you put in that folder could be seen by this the server. service. This, yeah, mm-hmm. the server, the, the centralized mm-hmm. server could see whatever you put in there. Now, in the case of Napster, we're talking MP3 files. So if you put, if you had MP3 files already on your machine and you put them in this folder, it would mean that those would be discoverable by that centralized server. So someone else who registers with, Na- uh, well, it wasn't called Napster yet, but when mm-hmm. they register with the service and they search for a particular music file and you happen to have that music file in your folder, your uh, a link to essentially your machine would pop up and the server would facilitate a connection between the person searching and your computer so that the file transfer could complete. So Lauren, let's, let's use, we'll, we'll use ourselves as an example. Okay. Lauren, let's say that you've heard about this band called Common Rotation. Okay. All right. Common Rotation, fronted by Adam Bush, former uh, actor in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series. Right, right. Yeah, he was Warren. He was Warren, nerd of doom. So, Lauren, you've heard of Common Rotation, and you're thinking, I really want to hear this one song I've heard about that Common Rotation does. It's uh, called Sit Down Before I Fall Down. But uh, I, you know, I don't have access to a way of finding this, this song otherwise. I go into Napster. It turns out that I, Jonathan, happen to have that song, and I have it in the share folder for Napster. And when you do the search, it p- points a link toward my direction, toward my computer. Okay. You hit the download button. My computer uploads the file, and your computer downloads the file, and it's a direct transfer between the two computers. The centralized server just acts as kind of a traffic monitor. Okay. Um, and the, the the cool thing about this is that when my file gets to you, by default, it's going into your share folder. You can change those settings, or you could have changed those settings back in the day, because this could, service doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> right, right. Or you can pull it out of that share folder right, if you wanted to. Right. Uh, but you you don't you don't have to share everything you get. But if you did... That would mean that now there's another instance of that file that there's exists. There's two locations, so that if you right. can't, if you have trouble um, accessing the first location, or if, uh, if, if the I'm connection not, peters out, yeah, or if I'm not even online, mm-hmm. like if I, if my computer is off, you cannot connect to my right. computer. But if Lauren is on and she still has that file in her folder, that means person number three could come in and get the file from Lauren. So every time that someone used Napster, they were actually increasing its utility. Mm-hmm. So it was a service that got stronger the more people used it, and the more the 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 larger the numbers joined, the more powerful this service became. Right, right. And so, so early in 1999, Sean Fanning was was developing this this program and coding everything along with uh, Sean Parker, I think. Yeah, and, and uh, there's they, a story that he did 60 straight hours of coding without sleep. Uh, that sounds like one of those terrific internet myths. Although with you know with energy drinks, uh, which were which were new. The, the Red Bull was brand new, and they were downing them in cases. They were, they were. But so they uploaded this beta to a, a website called Download.com, mm-hmm. and and it it hit really big. People were so excited about it. Yeah, it was. It very quickly became clear that this this thing that they had come up with was going really resonated mm-hmm. really because there were a lot of people who were really interested in music and there's also there was also this growing attitude of if i like one song but i don't like the rest of the album why should i, why buy, should I buy the entire, whole album mm-hmm. for one song sure and the problem at that time was that there was no real way to buy 
song by song. Uh, in, unless a band had released specifically a, a single CD right. or a cassette. Right. Other than that, you were pretty much out of luck. You mm-hmm. had to buy the entire album. And so that was why a lot of people were turning, one of the reasons why a lot of people were turning to piracy, because mm-hmm. it allowed them the freedom to get what they wanted without getting all the other stuff. Yeah. And uh, one of the big arguments people have put forward about you know the piracy thing is that if the music industry had moved faster to make it more of a, a more accessible, possible. sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if the music industry had been moving ahead of the population at the time, or thinking ahead, or even just looking at the internet at that time, which they really weren't, yeah, then they could have they could have headed entire, off the whole piracy mm-hmm. issue, yeah. to a large extent. Like, if you make it easy for people to get your stuff, and then people will come and pay for your stuff. If, however, it's way easier for people to steal your stuff, They'll don't steal be it. surprised when it gets stolen. Yeah, this is, I, I have I have ideas about HBO's content like like this, uh, c- cable <laughs> cable television in general. And yeah, that's one of those things where you know you'd be like, oh, HBO Go, I'm going to get that. And then you realize, wait a minute, if I don't have the HBO subscription, I can't. This is useless. Access, yeah, yeah you, it's you only can. if I already have it. If I already have it, why do I need? Why you know, do I? Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, that's a, that's a whole different, different show. Hey guys, it's time for me to interrupt this classic episode so that we can take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road, into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry. The Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. 
No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. You saw the potential. Through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100 thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Look to your left, look to your right. <laughs> yep, no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, so back in back in 1999, uh, so he had this cool idea. His uncle John, who had gotten him that first computer, gave him some seed money, and I I think maybe facilitated an introduction to Eileen Richardson. Right, and this is also around the time Sean Fanning has decided to call it Napster, which was based off a nickname he had in junior high school based oh. on his hairstyle. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's just thought I was like, I have to get this fact out there, and if I don't say it now, it's not going to happen. But yeah. So Eileen Richardson was a venture capitalist, um, a funky who, one, a very funky one. All you know, all the punked out hair, right, right. Yeah. All the reports about her are like, yeah, she goes to Amsterdam to listen to bands and she's got pink hair. It's really cool. Yeah, so, um, but so, so clearly so, she's hardcore. She 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 invested in the company and signed on as the uh, interim CEO. Yes, in mid 1999. Exactly. She she was uh, someone who had had a lot of experience in investing in internet companies. And, you know, keep in mind, this is 99, so we're still talking before the big bubble crash. Right. Uh, it's the heady days of the internet when everyone's trying to figure out, like, there's this incredible resource. How can we use it to our best advantage? And she was one of those people who was right there on the bleeding edge yeah. looking at the possibilities. And she got really excited. She was very much a passionate uh, music fan. Mm -hmm. And so she was a music fan and a venture capitalist. Napster fell right into her wheelhouse. Yeah. So she jumped in. She ended up making a, a very substantial uh, investment. And then, uh, like like you said, Lauren, she became the interim CEO. Mm -hmm. By by September of 1999, there were uh, 40,000 registered Napster users. Yeah. Um, and it was connecting a few hundred people at a time at any given time. Right. And by this time, Sean Parker has gone from uh, being an IRC buddy to a real life buddy uh, and is working with Fanning on this project. Uh, and and it was also right around the same time that the Recording Industry Association of America, also known as the RIAA, which represents five of the major music labels. labels. Like we're talking mm -hmm. like the, the, the big ones, the big, big ones, the ones that own everything else, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, started to really tackle uh, websites that were hosting uh, uh, music files that were uh, under copyright. Mm -hmm. So the RIAA was actually actively seeking uh, these sites being taken down. Now, keep in mind, Napster's circumventing all this. It's no longer looking at websites that are hosting files. It's looking directly at people's hard drives right. where there's this shared folder. So 
while RIAA is going after all these websites, Napster's d- g- doing, you know, business like gangbusters. And when I say business, it's not really business. Because they weren't making money. Yeah, they had no revenue generating scheme mm-hmm. at all. There was no way for Napster to make money. It just, that wasn't part of what was going on. In fact, it, I'm not sure that it was ever really part of their, uh, their, their, original plan service plan right yeah originally originally it was all just about sharing and that you know they knew that the service had value but not in a way that they could actually monetize uh, monetize and sure. although you know they were they were looking even in the early days mm-hmm. they were looking at ways to 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 get licenses from various music labels right where they'd be able to do things like sell music files through napster mm-hmm. um as well as kind of you know diffuse the growing problem mm-hmm. of the riaa looking yeah, yeah. out for yeah. Or, or, or even later on, they were talking about you know trying to find a way to count um, count these hits, count these downloads, and and tally them up and pay the recording artists and the labels and all of that for right. for the music. So you know, it, it's I, I think it's really important to mention that because these these kids really weren't out there going like we're going to steal all the music. Right. In fact, they were just thinking like this is a way to this share so stuff, cool. and yeah. it's a tool for music discovery, which was a yeah. that was a big deal too. Was the idea like it's it's getting harder and harder to discover music? Radio stations might play the same like you yeah, know, they're, they're, couple dozen tracks. They're technically obligated to pay the play the same like forty tracks right. by their contracts. So, so that's so how do you discover mm-hmm. new stuff if you don't have the luxury of flying off to Amsterdam every few months to listen to a band play? Right. Then how do you discover new music if you're yeah. not you know you may not live in a city that has a, a vibrant music community, it mm-hmm. makes it really difficult. And so, so, you know, although the record industry was doing fine, it, it, its profits raised 8% in 1999 over yeah. the previous year. Um, by by the end of the year, um, the RIAA filed a lawsuit against Napster. Right. Right around that same time, uh, Napster hired its first non-founding member named Ali Idar. Uh, and then right, at, right while that was going on, uh, RIAA was uh, really... Looking at Napster as a, a true threat, like this was, if if the websites hosting uh, a few music files were bad, Napster was Darth Vader coming out to kill all the Jedi. Right, and so RIAA really started to concentrate on them. In fact, called uh, Napster a giant online pirate bazaar. That's bazaar, B A Z A A R, not, not bazaar as one. in strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. The thing was that as the RIAA began to focus on Napster and all this news broke about coming after Napster, that just made Napster's profile go up even more, which meant right. more people discovered the service, which meant that it actually got more popular than ever before. Uh, meanwhile, the RIAA was specifically looking at charging Napster $100,000 for every copyrighted work that was infringed. Which... Which is a bunch. I That's mean, a lot. Yeah, I mean, and, and remember, this is a service that grows incredibly every time someone new joins in, especially sure. if that person has files on their computer that wasn't already spread across the entire uh, Napster landscape. Right. So if you know, if I join on and I happen to have my Tibetan throat singing uh, magical. CD that nobody else in the whole world owns, and it happens to be on my computer, then suddenly I am of more value to Napster mm-hmm. because there's new stuff that no one ha- no one else has yet. Uh, if I happen to have Dave Matthews' greatest hits, there's a chance that was already covered on Napster. I would think so. Um, I don't have that album, by the way. I'm very proud I'm of you. I'm very proud. I don't either. That's I'm not not. I'm not passing any judgment. Dave I'm just Matthews. saying. We all. So, 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was fun. But yeah, uh, uh, here's something that Eileen Richardson specifically had to say about Napster. And this comes from an interview she did with Salon. Where, uh, this was after, uh, Metallica, after, after Lars Ulrich himself had came by and, and dropped off this, this mm-hmm. huge lawsuit. Cause it wasn't just the RIAA that came after Napster. Individual labels and bands also came after Napster. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so she said, I think, and then in brackets, because this is not exactly what she said, but Metallica and the recording industry's actions are based on a lack of knowledge and fear. When you're afraid of something that you don't understand, you react, usually with a lawsuit. But over time, and we see this absolutely every single day, everybody's learning. We're learning about the music industry. They're learning about the Internet. I'm confident that we'll get there together. Now, as it turns out, her words were not uh, quite prophetic. Uh, she was giving a little too much credit, I think, to all sides on this issue. Uh-huh. I don't mean to paint the RIAA as being this evil uh, entity. They were looking no, out for no. their interests in oh, a very, very passionate way. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, Napster was looking out for their interests in a very passionate way. I and think that everyone involved was being a little bit short-sighted about exactly what needed to happen. Yeah. No. But there is no doubt that the music industry had not really figured out the internet yet. Mm-hmm. In fact, because no one had a music store that was really of any true utility at this point. And so that's why when you have a service that allows people to get what they want, they go to it. Whether mm-hmm. that's a piracy service or if it's one that's legitimate, it uh, doesn't matter. If you give the people what they want, that's where they're going to go. And the music industry had not yet figured out how to give the people what they wanted. Yeah. And so that was the problem. By the way, I still remember the days when I would actually want to buy an album because I liked the album experience. Mm-hmm. But even at this point in the 90s, I was one of these people. I was one of the people saying, I don't want to buy an entire album. I just like this one I song. I like this one song, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, and it, I, I can't think of the last time besides like a soundtrack to a musical because jazz hands, I, <laughs> I can't think of the last time I sat down and listened to an album from start to finish. That's that's actually how I kind of usually do it myself. I if if I like an artist well enough, I'll buy the album and sit down and listen to it several times through. Actually, um, oh, man, but, it's uh, been a long time. I, I've done that with They Might Be Giants. Uh, I've done that with them, but uh, it's and Jonathan Colton, but and Marion Call. But beyond like a few uh, artists, I just don't like fun. No, I I just went out and bought the one. Song sure, for sure, fun. yeah, the one that everyone listens to. <laughs> uh, but anyway, getting back to to Napster uh, and around two thousand, they secured a round of funding from Hummer Winbald, mm-hmm. which uh, installed a man named Hank Berry as the CEO of Napster. Again, another interim CEO. So Hank Berry takes over for Eileen Richardson in 2000. And his main concern was to try and resolve the legal issues that had popped up between Napster and the RIAA. Right, right. Uh, and other people on his management team took over the day-to-day executive decisions of, of uh, uh, keeping the company going. Mm-hmm. So really... Uh, Hank Berry was just looking at the legal issues, not not mm-hmm. how to operate the company. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, yeah, you know, it's when you've got people like Dr. Dre talking directly to you about lawsuits, then yeah. it's you start. Yeah. Well, and there were some you, you there were some, team there were some artists who were uh, coming out in defense. Yeah. Uh, Limp Bizkit, uh, yeah. Offspring. I think Chuck D was yep. big. Yeah. Um, yes, he was. <laughs> uh, he was also a big uh, supporter of Napster. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that was uh, so. Th- so there were artists on either side of the issue. Obviously, uh, 2000 was also when uh, this was a- another thing that got Napster a ton of publicity when colleges started to ban Napster. Yeah, something I I, I think that I read a figure that something like 40 percent of colleges yeah, it was around, uh, across the U.S. It was around a, in in March of 2000. By March of 2000, it was about 130 universities, but more would join. Right, right. Uh, and and it was also their biggest period of of activity. They had up. Words of 70 million registered users. Yeah, and around two and a half million people connected at any one time. Wow. So, so keep in mind, these servers could only handle a certain number of connections. They, they had more than one server. But in the early days, if you wanted to use the service, you would connect to the server, and then about up to around 4,999 other people could connect to that same server at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the servers could handle larger loads than others, but you know the more you would put in there, the slower the whole service would go. So you would, you would be connected to a server along with thousands of other people, which meant that you were limited to whatever those other people had in their share folders, right? Sure. So... Not every music file in the world is available at any given time. It all depends upon who is connected to the service at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and originally, each server was kind of its own independent It's a little world, and it depended on, you know, just when you signed in, what, what server you would hit right. and, and who else would be on there, you know. Right. But, but at, at this time, they were running about 140 servers, I think is the estimate. And, and ultimately, what their goal was, was to link all the servers together. So right. that way, if I linked to server A and Lauren linked to server B, they w- we would still be able to exchange files. Now, in the early days, that was impossible. Mm-hmm. It, we would both need to be on server A or both be on server B for that to work. Uh, so anyway... Uh, the universities and colleges also began to notice that that uploads were uh, the upload speeds were really dying on campus because yeah. people people were using the service and that um, I think I think that by it might have been in two thousand one of, of January Indiana University noticed that up to fifty percent of its network resources were being used by Napster yeah yeah and Oxford University really suffered because right. um, here's the thing about Oxford University. They had to pay for any data transferals that were transatlantic. So any files that were passing over the cables that go underneath the ocean that connected the, uh, Europe to the North America. They got charged per byte. Yeah, so, so. They, they had to pay per byte, a certain amount per byte for that. So people on the Oxford campus who were using Napster and were downloading files directly from computers in the USA mm-hmm. were really driving that up. Yeah, yeah, they joked that it would, been, it would have been less expensive to have just bought the students the CDs. Right. If, they, if, if the college had gone out to a music store and just filled up 400 carts <laughs> with CDs and brought it back to the campus, it would have been less expensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so uh, this was also around the time when uh, this was mainly Eileen Richardson's influence here, where they were looking at incorporating more social tools in Napster, things like instant messenger, chat rooms. Yeah, that, that good old uh, IRC stuff that... Uh that they were also fond of. Yeah, and, and again, this was an idea to kind of help users discover new music mm-hmm. and learn more about the stuff that they're interested in. Uh, and so uh, it was really becoming a social platform at the same time as it was uh, under fire from the industry. Um, and so we're getting now to the point where we, we need to take a quick break. But before I say that, remember, even at this point where Napster's 
going crazy with huge amounts of traffic. Remember, at, at this stage, it's the most popular web service that has ever existed. It would be dwarfed by things like Facebook in the oh, future. Sure. But this, but the this time, is this is before Facebook. Yeah, at the, at the time, connecting you know a few million people simultaneously that was, was a big deal, unheard of. Yeah, yeah. so uh, so huge deal. Still not any way to generate revenue. But uh, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road, into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. You saw the potential. Through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Look to your left, look to your right. <laughs> yep, no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, and now let's get back to Napster. All right, so so 2000's come and gone. We're into 2001. And Napster receives an order to shut down. Uh, this is an this, order. This is a court order. A court order to shut down its services because the RIAA has said that Napster is uh, complicit in copyright infringement suits. It's not just that it is uh, a service. It is actively helping people copyright. That's essentially what it would have to be for it to get around this whole DMCA safe harbor issue. And that's a debatable thing. But the judge kind of sided with the music industry. Uh, there was a stay in the order. Yeah, two, two days later, in fact, I think, a, a stay yeah. was enacted. Right. So they didn't have to shut down immediately. However... Not that much longer, they would get another order to shut down, and they actually would have to do it. Right. Uh, and they received right around that same time. Yeah. During that stay, they received uh, what, like sixty million dollars yeah, investment money from, from Bertelsmann. Bertelsmann, of course, being a giant multimedia company that, in fact, owned a bunch of the companies that were participating in a lawsuit against Napster. Yeah. So you have to understand. Okay. So Bertelsmann is this mega multimedia company based out of Germany. All right. And it owns lots and lots of stuff, lots of different divisions. Yeah. And these different divisions don't necessarily talk to each other. So one division sits there and sees Napster and sees lots of potential in it as turning it into a revenue generating service. Mm -hmm. Another division that has nothing to do with that first division is seeing Napster as the pirate that is killing its business and it needs to go after it. Well, I, I think that really, I mean, I, I think it was extremely savvy of Burlesman to be investing in them at the time because they were looking at it and they were going, this is potentially the future. This is how they, if you know, what they're doing right now is crappy for us. But if people people are excited about music, and that's great, I and, think, and if think, we can monetize that, I think Bertelsmann would argue that retroactively, it was not a savvy move at all. Ha. Huh. Okay. Well, sure. <laughs> but but you know, they saw the, where the future was going. Mm -hmm. It unfortunately was the wrong time to implement it. Yes. Uh, because it yes. just turned out that the 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 hornet's nest that had been stirred up was so great as to totally derail any efforts in turning Napster into yeah. a quote unquote legit. Revenue generating service, right? Yeah. Well, they they installed um, Conrad Hilbers as um, the new CEO. As the new CEO. Yeah. So and, Hank Berry steps aside. Uh huh. And uh, meanwhile, uh, like just just as Conrad Hilbers was taking over, uh, Hank Berry had just gone before Congress and asked Congress to uh, to form some sort of industry-wide license agreement for internet broadcast, similar to what radio has. Right. Uh, sure. And his his argument was that. Really, we're just another distribution platform, just like radio. So really, we should we should have the same opportunity to license music the way radio does. The mm -hmm. problem with the problem with establishing a license for every single file is that it's impossible to do. Sure. Because take take a take a typical album. 
that album might have multiple producers on it. And each producer has some level of ownership of the tracks that are on that album. Uh-huh. Then you have the artists, and they also have some ownership on the tracks on that album. Of the composition and of the actual performance. Right. Yeah. So securing a license from every single copy, you know, like everyone who owns it's part rough. of that content, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. This, you know, he, he was saying that for one album, you might have to secure hundreds of licenses just to be able to have that one album. Mm-hmm. Then you multiply that across the hundreds of thousands of albums that have always existed and the new ones that are coming out every year, and you have an impossible situation. There's right. no way to legally uh, follow that rule. So right. what needs to happen is a new legal way he wasn't arguing. Yeah, yeah, sure. He wasn't arguing for for piracy. He was just arguing for a new legal means to license mm-hmm. music, and that was getting really bogged down in Congress. So then he ends up stepping aside, and uh, and Conrad Hilbers takes over. Um, Conrad didn't have a whole long time to operate Napster before it got uh, shut down. That was in, on June 11th, 2001. That's when Napster shut off its service. Mm-hmm. It still existed as a corporate entity. Right. And it started to really concentrate on finding a way to create a legal music distribution service. And I, I say legal with air quotes around it because Napster, again, would be arguing that what they but did they was perfectly never done legal. Anything wrong. Right. They, they, they were, were only, safe harbor. Right. They were only connecting people to do illegal things. Right. And that, that wasn't even the purpose of Napster. The purpose of Napster right. was mu- sharing music and that, that, you know, it's the fact that people were using it to share music illegally. That wasn't Napster's fault, and you can argue whether or not that's naive or sincere. Sure, sure. uh, That's not really our place to do that. I mean, you could certainly... You certainly could have used Napster in a perfectly legal means. If an artist had given... Full, full permission. Full permission. Mm-hmm. Like, I want this. You can distribute this any way you sure. like. I have no, I, I release all claim to it. Otherwise, I just want my music out there. Then it would have been perfectly legal to, to distribute that across Napster. Uh, it was the pro- the problem was there were people doing that with stuff where that what they didn't have that they permission. They did not have that permission. Yeah. Now you could ask, how is this different from taking my copy of a CD that I've bought? making a copy and giving it to, it to Lauren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all I've done is just change the way that Lauren has has received that music. Mm-hmm. And is it my fault that Lauren and maybe 2.4 million people I don't know got that music track? I don't know. Um, so it got really complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then the the next note that I have is in 2002 when yeah. um, the you know the company was was still shuttered but but Working, um, and they entered into a beta test of a secure file trading network that January. Yeah, and uh, and that was it was something they were really seriously working on at the same time as trying to figure out a way to stave off the the growing financial problems they were uh, facing mm-hmm. as a result of these lawsuits. Yeah, yeah, they they were so serious that um, as of February, Bertelsmann just kind of offered to buy the company. I think for for like like. 20 million like not not a whole lot it was it was yeah in addition to the, it was addition in addition to the money they had already invested into the company so which was I, I like 85 million yeah, i think in total so, it was like okay, 85 million okay but i think yeah. uh, i could be i could be you know there are a lot of interesting reports on this so it's kind of hard to follow yeah it gets uh, a little bit timey-wimey but. Yeah, yeah exactly wibbly wobbly <laughs> in uh, may 2002 sean fanning and conrad hilbers both resigned Right. Yeah. This was uh, John, John Fanning. You know, kind of tried to organize a coup from the way that I read it. Oh, um, interesting. He was he was trying to oust uh, uh, 
uh, Hummer and Hank Berry and all the venture capitalists. And um, and there was all of this infighting within the company going on. Um, Fanning eventually filed a lawsuit to have Berry and Hummer dismissed from the board of directors. The suit was thrown out of court. But um, but but yeah, as, as of May, things had gotten so bad that um, that Sean Fanning, he quits. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another interesting note is that Sean Fanning apparently never drew more than just a regular like paycheck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His paycheck was just it was like a middle of the company type of paycheck. And after after founding it, he worked as he worked as a grunt, as a coder. Yeah. In fact, he, he apparently started getting into trouble because he was getting so many requests for interviews back when uh, Napster was really in the news for all this this uh, legal battle stuff. He was getting so many requests for interviews. He wasn't able to meet his his uh, coding uh, uh, responsibilities, and he started getting in trouble from his boss. Uh-huh. Keeping in mind, he's the guy who built the tool. Yeah, he's and he's the guy who kind of technically hired his boss. So, and now his boss is like, uh, "You kind of need to, um, you kind of need to get back to work, buddy." Yeah, uh, uh, but but so so um, Napster denied this sale to Bertelsmann, um, and it kind of just sort of dies from there. It uh, collapsed like a flan in a cupboard. At the, nice. At that, it was trapped like a moth in a bath. At that point, uh, there were also, the, the major labels were trying to launch their own services. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was called Press Play, which uh, was launched in, uh, I think, around 2002, and it ended in 2003. Mm-hmm. Another one was called Music Net, which was also a failure. And the problem was that Buying music from these services was often more trouble than what people thought it was worth. Uh, again, it was not. It, it became easier to pirate music than it was to buy it. And if it's easier, people will do it. Mm-hmm. And, so, and other other companies like a Kazaa and things like that were popping up. Yeah. So so you had Nutella as well. You had other file sharing uh, uh, services out there. They were picking up where Napster had dropped off. And so um, uh, there were there were a lot of casualties in this whole. Rise and fall of Napster. And, you know, keep in mind this is just 1999 to 2002, and um, yeah, yeah, so, it happened. I I had no idea when we started doing this that it had happened that fast. Well, because it was such a huge name, right? Mm-hmm. You just expect that it had at sure. least a decade worth of life. Yeah. And of course, we'll get into what Napster is now in just a minute. But, okay. Uh, but besides the fact that you had Fanning, who never drew anything more than just a, a regular salary, uh, Eileen Richardson had a huge career setback. Business Week ran uh, an article that essentially said that all of the legal problems were mainly due to the way Richardson was running the company, which was not entirely accurate, oh, not well, very you know, fair to her. Yeah, how, how she was running the company and how she was marketing everything. Yeah. Because she was she was very, like, like free love about the music, and, so, so which, which is great. But Yeah, apparently that... that, that Hit her pretty hard. Yeah, and also uh, the Bertelsmann CEO Thomas Middlehoff was um, was replaced. He was uh, you know, replaced by another CEO when that Napster deal was went so sour, and plus the economy itself oh, began sure. to really crumble. Because keep in mind, this is post dot com crash, and the um, ramifications of that are still unfolding in two thousand two. So you've got the. Uh, the company just completely languishing. There's there's very little of it left. It ends up going into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And then there's a, a bankruptcy auction held in 2002. This is still happening, like, wow. right after mm-hmm. the other. Yeah. And a company called Roxio purchases the assets of Napster uh, in an auction in 2002. They also, that same company purchased that failed music service called Press Play in 2003. And so they decided to use the 
the kind of the cachet of Napster's name and the foundation of the press play service and combine them together to form Voltron. Except by Voltron, I mean a legal music service that everyone knows the name of because everyone's heard the name Napster. Yes. So they take some time to develop this. And the reason why it took so long is that they had to establish those licenses that Napster never could get hold of. Right. You know, uh, they had been, Napster had been trying to do that for especially the last two years of its existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and failed and so and yeah well, and meanwhile companies like Rhapsody um, which was another it wasn't a file sharing thing but it was a music music subscription plan uh, yeah we're, we're starting to yeah you you started to see some scene. early examples of other music subscription services uh, Roxio would take years to develop this it would actually not be until 2006 so this is four years after they bought the assets of Napster that they launched the free Napster service the uh, they they place Chris Gorog as the chairman and CEO of Napster. And in that time, what Napster did was it used ads to support a free web-based streaming experience. Now, you could stream any song that was in Napster's catalog a maximum of three Three times. times. Right. After that, you had to either purchase the song or... Or never um... listen to it again. (laughs) At least not on Napster. Right, right. Yeah, you had to you had to purchase the song. Now, nice thing about it is that you could purchase a DRM-free version of the MP3 of whatever song it was. So mm-hmm. you didn't have to worry about okay, well, you can buy this song, but you can only play it on three machines, and after that, that's it. Yeah, you know, because that was one of the big problems of early DRM with oh, music yeah. was that you could it would limit how many machines you could put it on. And it, you know, here's the thing about technology, folks. Our stuff gets out of date, and we want to replace it occasionally. So if you tell me that I can only load this on three machines, I'm like, well, that's it's only going to last like five years. Yeah, then I have to buy the song again. What's mm-hmm. what's the deal? And this is where you bring into question, like, all right, do you you don't obviously you don't own the song because you didn't make it, but you you own the opportunity to experience that song within the realm of a specific kind of license. It's licensed for home use. Yeah. A, and then your their argument might might be, well, I want to use it at home, but none of the things I have will play it now. Right. Uh, It's complicated. Uh, And in fact, we could probably do a full episode about that. We've talked about it in previous ones. Well, uh, so 2006, they launch. Chris uh, Gorag is the chairman and CEO. uh, And uh, they try to get it moving, but it doesn't really catch on. For one thing, at this point, they're starting to to really come into uh, competition with iTunes. By now, right. iTunes is really a thing. Uh-huh. And uh, so from 2006 to 2010, that was Napster's existence. But in 2010, Gorog ends up stepping down, and uh, the president of Napster also steps down, and Best Buy purchases Napster. So the Napster COO, Christopher Allen, becomes the general manager of Napster, because now it's owned by Best Buy. It's no Mm -hmm. longer a thing Mm -hmm. that Roxio has. And his reporting relationship is to a Best Buy senior executive. Right. So there's a new new sheriff in town, in uh, in a sense. And uh, from 2010 to 2011, it's run as a Best Buy company. And in 2011... Rhapsody, which Lauren mentioned just a minute ago, acquires Napster and folds it into its own streaming music service. So right, now right. Rhapsody and Napster are buddy buddy. Yeah, I think that I think that Rhapsody had been in close affiliation with Best Buy at the time. Anyway, um, yes, uh, I think that that was the official service for the Best Buy line of MP3 players yes. back when that was a thing. 
Yep, and uh, and and Napster still exists. Now, granted, keep in mind the Napster we're talking about now, really, it has very little connection to the Napster that was in the first half of this podcast. Yeah, it's a it's a purely subscription service. Um, you can use it to download um, or stream music. Um, to different devices. To different devices, yeah. mobile. You know, it, it, it's got a sleek-looking interface. Yeah, um, and you can listen to it. Like, you can, if you have a compatible home entertainment system, you can listen to it on that. You can listen to it on, uh, you know, like I said, like a, a MP3 players, uh, tablets, smartphones. But along the line of, of something like, like Pandora um, or, or Spotify. Although you have you have far more control than you would on Pandora. Oh, right, right. And when you subscribe to it, you um, uh, cut out all the ads and all that fancy right. stuff. Right. So. In, in fact, you have to subscribe to it. You can have right. a free... 14-day trial, as I recall. Right. Mm-hmm. In the United States, I can't speak for everywhere in the world, but in the United States, the current subscription rate as of the recording of this podcast is $9.99 per month. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, they have apps for Android, iOS, BlackBerry, Windows Phone 7. Uh, they have extra features like tailored playlists that have been formed by various either, you know, sometimes they're bands or mm-hmm. an artist or sometimes it's like a, like a music critic for a magazine will make a playlist and then they make it available on this so that way you can listen to the the music that people cooler than you are listening to. Right. Uh, and that, by the way, for me, that's everybody. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying like you are cooler than I am. I know you knew that already. I'm just letting you know that I also know that. So that's that's. And a I, thing. I will go especially music wise. I will let myself into that category as well. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, I, I was not aware of Neutral Milk Hotel until years after they were a thing. That's that's the kind of guy I am. But <laughs> I was I was on board with Mumford and Sons before any of you folks knew who they were. Besides, unless Mumford and Sons is listening to this podcast, in which case they probably knew about it before I did. Probably. It's um, likely. But anyway. But yeah, they also had the Rhapsody radio station. So that's more like Pandora, you know, and they, they have their own kind of discovery algorithms as well so that you can find music that if you already like a certain kind of music, you can It'll find recommend. other. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting. If you go back all the way back to the beginning days of Napster and you look at some of the things that Eileen Richardson said, it's the very basis for music discovery and oh, things yeah. like Pandora. Yeah. The idea. She actually says in that interview in Salon that if you like a certain artist, you should be able to find other music that's yeah. similar to that artist, which is exactly what Pandora is all about, that, yeah. that musical genome project. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting that she was looking ahead and she was seeing a future that wouldn't really come to maturity for almost a decade. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Napster was, was it, you know, it just was approaching the industry in, in an aggressively incorrect way. Um, yeah, well, and and, and and the industry was reacting in a very uh, like knee jerk way. Uh-huh. So the combination of the two meant that you were going to have nothing but uh-huh. a collision. Yeah, yeah, but but also yeah, just the internet infrastructure was not quite there yet to provide monetization for this kind of thing. And and so you know all of the ideas that they had were really sound and just. But really, what I think it is is that the the interesting thing to me is that it really created the whole peer to peer approach. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were other peer to peer protocols um, that were coming into being right around the same time as Napster, but Napster was the one that thrusted into the spotlight. Right. And you know, peer to peer is 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 a completely legitimate way to get information from one computer to another computer. It doesn't have to be for nefarious purposes or piracy or whatever. And so, it, I'm very thankful that. Napster existed as a way to kind of get that as uh, as an as as a thing. I mean, without it, we might have gone a few more years before anyone really realized the potential for peer to peer transmissions. So that was something very important in this whole Napster business. All right, guys, that wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. 
And if you have any suggestions for future topics, something that I have not covered or maybe I need to revisit, let me know. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter. The handle we use at both of those is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.